Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1214. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 21. This is being recorded on November 12th of the year 2021. This program is going to wrap up this long series, which has essentially provided the historical background and the foundation, for historical background to and foundation of the events leading up to the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Our next program will update the series of programs about the, the Oswald Institute of Virology, as I call it. However, that uh, mega-covert operation, sort of the Northwoods virus derived from Operation Northwoods, we'll talk more about that next week, uh, is an outgrowth of a long and altogether misguided and globally tragic and, frankly, fascistic U.S. policy toward Asia in general that grew out of our interactions with and relationship to Chiang Kai-shek and his narco-fascist government. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at how that has come home to roost today. However, first, let me, before we uh, wrap up this series and uh, present the last program in it. Let me remind you of three links. First of all, one of those links, these are at the top of each For the Record program description and each Food for Thought post. One link will enable you to subscribe to the comments that are made most of them by our brilliant contributing editor, Parafractal, some by others. Uh, another link will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made of this program by sister station WFMU. So if podcasting is the best way for you to consume the program, then WFMU is podcasting the program. So take advantage of that. And the third link will enable you to obtain the 32 gigabyte flash drive with all of my life's work on it, plus a mini library of old anti-fascist books on easy to download PDF files. That Flash drive is going to be updated as of for the record 1215, which I'm going to do next week. So it will be, uh, current. Uh, I am in my 43rd year on the air and, uh, basically the amalgam of what I have done is available for a nominal fee. Uh, I do not get any money from that. However, I emphatically encourage people to get a hold of that, and uh, that will be basically make them a repository for information about uh, how the world, I'm afraid, is going to end. Now, we are going to follow, in a sense, the metaphorical railway line that was posited by uh, a most unfortunate and uh, unfortunately very influential State Department official named Stanley Hornbeck, H-O-R-N-B-E-C-K. And we are going to repeat the information about him from the landmark text that we have been using for most of the program, uh, most of this series, I should say. That is the Sun 
Dynasty, capital S-O-O-N-G, Dynasty by Sterling Seagrave, and it was, uh, he was greatly assisted in his uh, publishing of the book by his wife, Peggy. It was published in hardcover by uh, Harper and Rowe. There are also softcover editions available, as we will see at the end of the program. Uh, for publishing this book, uh, the Kuomintang put together an assassination team on Taiwan to travel to the U.S. to kill Sperling and Peggy Seagrave. A high-ranking CIA official warned them of this and told them that, uh, I would take this very seriously if I were you, unquote, so they decamped to a sailboat and lived on that sailboat for a long time. We'll talk about that later in the program, but in a sense, as uh, I hope to at least be able to hint at and touch on, the straight railway line of American-Asian policy comes right through to the U.S. Uh, we talked about how uh, Chiang Kai-shek's narco-fascism in many ways uh, set the template for U.S. government drug trafficking, something that is sadly institutionalized at this point in time. We have spoken about how President Kennedy's assassination kept that railway line uh, on schedule and uh, avoided uh, derailing that line uh, vis-à-vis the Vietnam War and the bloody Indonesian coup of 1965. We are going to take a look at uh, how things have come home to roost, and I'm going to present a... Just a remarkably written and very eloquent conclusion to the book, The Sung Dynasty. One of the many things that I mourn about uh, the passing of Sterling and Peggy Seagraves, uh, Seagrave is that uh, they write in a way we just don't see anymore. And the conclusion of the book called The Concubine in the Well is a very complicated metaphor. They are comparing the last dowager empress of the Manchu dynasty as China was approaching its fall, with the Song clan. It is a very complicated uh, metaphor, but I think a very appropriate one, and we will conclude, well, not quite conclude the program, uh, with a reading of that. However, the straight line of U.S. Far Eastern policy comes straight home to the U.S. Uh, JFK found that out in Beely Plaza on November 22, 1963. Turning to the Song Dynasty, the man officially responsible for making U.S.-China policy, Stanley Hornbeck, H-O-R-N-B-E-C-K, the doyen of states Far Eastern Division, have only the most abbreviated and stilted knowledge of China and have been out of touch personally for many years, skipping down. On this dubious basis, Hornbeck got a job as a lecturer on Asia at Harvard in the 20s, published another book that did not stand up to serious scrutiny, and parlayed the book and his Harvard position into an appointment in 1928 as Chief of Far Eastern Affairs at the Department of State. This incredible stroke of misfortune for the nation gave Hornbeck control of the flow of information from Foreign Service officers This incredible stroke of misfortune for the nation gave Hornbeck control of the flow of information from Foreign Service officers to policy planners at state and to the presidential cabinet. He withheld cables from the Secretary of State that were critical of Chang and once stated that, quote, 
The United States Foreign Eastern Policy is like a train running on a railroad track. It has been clearly laid out, and where it is going is plain to all, unquote. It was, in fact, bound for Saigon in 1975, with whistle stops along the way at Peking, Komoi, Matsu, and the Yellow River. And I would add the Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas, on November 22nd, 1963, uh, Wuhan, China, in uh, late 2019, and all over the U.S. and the rest of the world, including Fort Detrick in Maryland. We'll talk about that uh, ever so briefly in the conclusion of the program. The book The Sung Dynasty is about the Sung family, and we have spoken about TV Sung, the, at one point, the richest man in the world, serving variously as the foreign minister, the uh, Secretary of the Treasury, and uh, head of the Narcotics Control Department, unquote, unquote. Uh, that was T.V. Sung, a man who was in many ways the driving force behind the China lobby. We have spoken about his brother T.L. Sung, who became a, a Treasury Department consultant, was also very rich and very influential. He was in charge of Lend-Lease during World War II, first on the Chinese end, them on the American end, and vast sums of money were siphoned off from that, some of it going directly into the pockets of the Song clan, and other elements of the Lend-Lease material were parlayed directly to the Japanese against whom it was to be used, and uh, other, a lot of it was sold on the black market by many of the key officers of the Kuomintang army, who doubled, as we have seen, as officials of the powerful Green Gang criminal syndicate in Shanghai. Tu Yuesheng, or Big Ear Tu, as he was known, was the real power behind the throne. He was the single most powerful man in what was called nationalist China. P.V. Sung's younger sister, Mei Ling, uh, eventually married Chiang Kai-shek and became Madame Chiang Kai-shek. And uh, as we have seen, uh, they were really beatified by the American press. They were represented sort of as uh, Mr. and Mrs. Jesus Christ. And uh, they were anything but uh, perhaps the most sinister and Machiavellian member of the family was the eldest of three sisters, Ailing Sung, who married H. H. Kung, the top financier, along with T.V. Sung in China and one of Chiang Kai-shek's top financial officials. Ailing Sung was a real Lucretia Borgia. She was a power behind the throne. She ran teams of assassins. She arranged the marriage of her younger sister to Chiang Kai-shek. And as a third sister, Chingling Sung, whom we will talk about in this program, as she put it, quote, quote, if older sister, meaning A. Lang Sung, had been a man, Chiang Kai-shek would have been dead 20, 15 years ago, and she would rule China today. A. Lang Sung, H. H. Kung, their sons, T. V. Sung, T. L. Sung, had an influence uh, on this country and its policy, as well as China, that was definitive. That set the direction for the railway line, and so many things, the McCarthy period with its who lost China uh, battle cry. Uh, remember that uh, Roy Cohn was Bill McCarthy's top legal hatchet man. He also was the political mentor to and counsel for Donald Trump during his uh, real estate mogul days in the 1980s. 
Uh, the Sung family were tremendously influential and consummately corrupt, and they were as rich as God. I mean, they did just have money up the yin-yang, and uh, that is what uh, Sterling Seagrave referred to as the Sung dynasty. There was, however, a third sister, and in order to understand the conclusion of the book, the uh, afterward called The Concubine in the Well, we're going to touch briefly on Ching Ling Sung. Ching Ling Sung was an idealist. At the age of 20, she eloped with Dr. Sun Yat-sen, who led the Chinese Revolution. Um, Americans know very little about China. In fact, they don't know much about anything. Uh, it's just, this, is a, this is a very sad people I've spoken about uh, the... NBC TV series, uh, Victory at Sea, which was an, a really profound early influence on me when I was a boy. A couple of years ago, a few years ago, I saw it on sale at Target, uh, on DVD for $5, and I figured, wow, what a deal. And, uh, so I picked it up, and it, it hasn't worn well. I knew too much about the reality of World War II. But the second disc, it was a two CD set, a two-DVD set, I should say. Uh, the second disc begins with an episode about the Allied recapture of Rome in 1944. It's called Roman Renaissance. And Renaissance is spelled R-E-N-I-S-S-E-N-C-E, which is microcosmic in its manifestation. Uh, that The person writing the text for the jacket, the DVD jacket, didn't know how to spell Renaissance. is bad enough and really very revealing. But the fact that it made the proofreading uh, process and it went on market, Roman Renaissance, R-E-N-I-S-S-E-N-C-E, and... Uh, Delaware Joe, Joe Biden has uh, basically tagged everything, including his environmental policy, his Build Back Better program as necessary to compete with China. He has, to date, not lifted the tariffs on uh, Chinese goods, which uh, Janet Yellen, head of the Federal Reserve, no, she's Secretary of the Treasury. Excuse me, she used to head the Federal Reserve. Um, she has uh, Treasury now. She has stated in no uncertain terms that that is hurting American consumers. But that doesn't matter to Delaware Joe because he is leading, he's going to build back better. He is leading an American renaissance, R-E-N-I-S-S-E-N-C-E. Uh, Dr. Sun Yat-sen led the Chinese Revolution in 1911. Ching Ling Sung, a member of the Sung family and one of five children of uh, Charlie Sung, uh, she eloped with Dr. Sun Yat-sen at the age of 20, and then Sun Yat-sen led the 1911 revolution, which overthrew the Manchu dynasty. And uh, then she became one... Uh, uh, Sun Yat Sen died, I think it was in 1921, maybe 1923. She became the widow of Dr. Sun Yat Sen. There was a recent gathering of the Chinese Communist Party with the usual coverage uh, by the New York Times and other uh, media outlets. And uh, right in the center of the stage uh, was a giant picture. They didn't explain who it was, who it was, 
was Dr. Sun Yat-sen. Then after the revolution, uh, there was a huge split between a right-wing organized crime and fascist element of the Kuomintang that was led by uh, Chiang Kai-shek and uh, by uh, bigger Tutu Yuashing. It eventually prevailed through a force of arms and treachery, and there was an explicitly left-wing branch of the Kuomintang as well, initially aligned with Moscow, but then on its own. It was grouped around, although not uh, entirely uh, encompassing the uh, encompassed by the Chinese Communist Party, and uh, that ultimately coalesced into the Chinese Communist Party of Mao Zedong. Uh, there were other elements in the Kuomintang, and one of them was Qingling Song. She did not like the communists or Chiang Kai-shek, and as we looked at in a few programs ago, she attempted to form something called the Third Option, along with a close associate and uh, someone who was rumored to be a romantic interest of hers, a fellow named Teng Yen-ta. And eventually, uh, the British and Americans arrested Teng Yen-ta, turned him over to Chiang Kai-shek and Bigger too, and he was kept in prison, tortured, and eventually executed by slow strangulation with a wire. Ching Ling Sung uh, eventually uh, did ally herself with, though did not become a member of, the Chinese Communist Party. One of the many things we don't know, and this is something I, my own field of knowledge is inadequate uh, with regard to, uh, is the fact that the Chinese Communist Party is a lot more nuanced than we have been led to believe. I still, you know, have a, a lot more of it. Well, I probably will never know it because I'm not going to have time to study it. But it's worth noting that Ching Ling Sung, again, Madame Sun Yat-sen, who had attempted to form a third option, basically neither fascist nor communist with Peng Yen Pa, that basically uh, cratered when Peng Yen Pa was arrested by the British and American authorities in the international section of uh, concession in, uh, in Shanghai, turned over to Chiang Kai-shek tortured him, and then executed him via slow strangulation with a wire. Uh, When Chiang Kai-shek eventually split from China to Formosa slash Taiwan, Ching Ling Sung had a last attempt at forming a third option, basically neither communist nor fascist. Uh, Nonetheless, she did become a key element in the Chinese revolutionary government, although never a member of the Chinese Communist Party. For She was very well respected, uh, because she was really a, uh, a, an individual of great originality and courage. At one point, a Green Gang member was trying to coerce her into endorsing a policy, and she told them basically to shove it. And he turned around and hissed at her, you know, if you weren't Madam Sun Yat-sen, we'd cut your head off. And she smiled at him and chuckled, and she said, quote, if you were the revolutionaries you pretend to be, you'd cut it off anyway. Basically, she put his deep blank, blank, blank in the dirt. And she was a remarkable lady, and even uh, as Chiang Kai-shek was fleeing to Taiwan, she had another attempt at forming a third option. Again, neither communist nor fascist. And yet she was able to 
get along with and become a key official of the Chinese Communist uh, Revolution, or the Revolutionary Committee, not the Chinese Communist Party, because she refused to join it. Now, for that reason, she then became a major target of the Red Guards during the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s. In fact, uh, Chinese Premier Cho Enlai had the fellow Red Guards in no uncertain terms, you know, keep your hands off of Madame Sun Yat-sen, a.k.a. Chen Ling Sung, uh, because they were threatening her, they trashed her house, and she was in danger from them. Not only was she viewed as a, quote, counter-revolutionary, unquote, but uh, Madame Mao, Mao Zedong's widow, was frankly very jealous of Ching Ling Sung, and uh, that jealousy uh, led the uh, power broker Madame Mao, again Ma- Mao Zedong's widow, to uh, the woman who became Mao Zedong's widow, to uh, direct the Red Guards to crash and discredit, not kill, fortunately, Ching Ling Sung. Uh, I would note that Sterling Seagrave is not at all unaware of, nor does he make excuses for the excesses of the Chinese Communist Party, the Cultural Revolution being a case in point. But uh, Ching Ling Sung had a remarkable career, and again, even just before aligning herself with Mao Zedong, she said about Mao Zedong, she said, I mistrust, I distrust all politicians, I distrust Mao Zedong less then I distrust the others. Those kinds of statements of independent political will were unacceptable to the Red Guards. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in order to understand the afterward called the concubine in the well, I think talking a little bit about Ching Ling Sung is worthwhile. Turning again to the Sung dynasty, and again, she was originally Ching Ling Sung. She married Dr. Sun Yat-sen. Ching Ling sold many of her remaining possessions to support the programs of the China Welfare League she had founded. In 1948, with the Chang regime ready to flee and the communists on their way to victory, she took part in the last attempt to organize an alternative to both communism and fascism, a new version of the Third Force. It was called the Revolutionary Committee, and Ching Ling was named as honorary chairman. Its constituency was the powerless. When the People's Republic came into existence, Ching Ling became one of the three non-communist political leaders chosen as vice chairman of the central government in Peking. Now, this this is something I did not know. And uh, again, as I said, the Communist Party of China is more nuanced than we have been led to believe. I don't believe that the Soviet Communist Party permitted anyone to to reach a position of power unless they were actually a member of the Soviet Communist Party. That was not the case in China. One more time. When the People's Republic came into existence, Ching Ling became one of the three non-communist political leaders chosen as vice chairman of the central government in Peking. I did not know that that was possible. Uh, the recent conclave of the Chinese Communist Party, again, with the usual predictable coverage by the New York Times, publishers of the Warren Report, by the way, and defenders of the Warren Report to this day, uh, there was a picture uh, and uh, of the, the room in which the uh, meeting was held. I mean, they had, you know, big uh, uh, 
uh, big red montage, and it was 1911 to 2021. 1911 was the year of the Chinese Revolution, led by Dr. Sun Yat-sen. It was not the Communist Revolution. There was the split, as I have mentioned, in the Kuomintang. But the picture in the middle wasn't Mao Zedong, and it wasn't Xi Jinping. It was Dr. Sun Yat-sen. And Ching Ling had eloped with him when she was 20. He was like 50-some-odd. And her father did not like that one bit, as you can imagine. Um... But Xing Ling was, uh, she was a player. She took no BS from anybody, including that Green Gang functionary uh, working for the Kuomintang, who, you know, said, if you weren't Madame Sun Yat-sen, we'd cut your head off. And she said, if you were the revolutionaries you pretend to be, you'd cut it off anyway. Again, just put his B-blank-blank bike in the dirt, B-blank-blank bike bike in the dirt. Uh, she was that kind of a woman. However, again, because she was one of three non-communist political leaders chosen as vice chairman of the central government in Peking, never joined the, the Chinese Communist Party, although she was inducted like two weeks before her death. It's unclear if she was even conscious enough that she uh, battled lymphoma for decades, and it was, she was right near the end of her life at this point. But eventually, uh, she became a major target of the Red Guards, of the Cultural Revolution, because Madame Now and the Gang of Four, who eventually were sent to prison, uh, did not like Ching Ling Sung one bit. And eventually, uh, she had a, a, a tough time after talking about the fact that she was very ill for the last two decades of her life. Uh, Sterling Seagrave goes on to write, but there was a happier side to her life. She adopted two girls, Yolanda and Jeanette. They were the children of one of her bodyguards. During the Red Guard rampages of the 1960s, the job of protecting Madame Sun Yat-sen became nerve-wracking. Posters appeared denouncing her, and it was not safe for her to go anywhere. After one harrowing encounter with the Red Guards, Ching Ling's bodyguard drank heavily and the next morning was found dead. Although she was nearly, then nearly 70, she was childless and without companionship. She adopted the two girls and raised them as her own. In the summer of 1966, Premier Cho and Lai was forced to warn the Red Guards to cease their verbal attacks on Madame Sun and to stop putting up posters accusing her of being a bourgeois reactionary. On September 21st, 1966, in Shanghai, where the Red Guard movement frequently got out of control, a mob stormed Ching Ling's house on the avenue Joffre and Lubavit. Ching Ling was not in Shanghai at the time. She let the incident pass without public comment. Her chief adversary was the wife of Chairman Mao, who apparently resented the fact that Ching Ling was always mentioned as the woman of highest rank in China. Again, we don't hear about this. One more time. Her chief adversary was the wife of Chairman Mao, who apparently resented the fact that Xing Ling was always mentioned as the woman of highest rank in China. For the last 15 years of her life, Xing Ling devoted her full attention to her adopted daughters. When the Red Guard movement abated and Madame Mao and the celebrated Gang of Four were tried in the People's Court as counter-revolutionaries and sent to prison, Ching Ling's life settled back into a tranquil twilight. And skipping down. 
On May 16, 1981, Sung Ching Ling was named Honorary President of China. We just don't hear about things like this. On May 16, 1981, Sun Ching-ling was named Honorary President of China. That same week, she was also inducted into the Chinese Communist Party, but it is hard to say if she was aware of the title or consented to being given the party's last rights. She succumbed to leukemia on May 29, 1981, in her Peking home. There was no published legacy like the one prepared for Dr. Sun Yat-sen when he died in the same city 56 years earlier. Actually, that would have been, I guess he died in 1926. But in an interview once with writer Han Suyin, S-U-Y-I-N, Ching Ling put into words the legacy she had learned most bitterly from the time of the songs. Quote, We must learn to arm ourselves against ourselves. Unquote. Uh, those are really, uh, I think, very brave and very good words. Uh, almost quasi-Buddhist, I think, in their uh, oh, in, in their overtones again. But in an interview once with writer Han Suyin, S-U-Y-I-N, I'm probably mispronouncing that, Ching Ling put into words the legacy she had learned most bitterly from the time of the songs. Quote, we must learn to arm ourselves against ourselves, unquote. Indeed, I think that is good advice. And uh, Tingling Sun was a remarkable woman. Again, she was part of the same family as TV, TL, Madam uh, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, uh, A-Ling Sung, a.k.a. Madam H.H. Kung, and the uh, blood letters and uh, thieves that <laughs> were uh, that basically comprised not only the uh, Kuomintang of Chiang Kai-shek, but also the China lobby. Now, the epilogue of uh, the book The Song Dynasty is a complex metaphor. Uh, Sterling Seagrave knew, knew a great deal about Asia and along with his wife wrote some remarkable books about Asia, not just the Song Dynasty but the Marcos Dynasty, the Yamato Dynasty, Lords of the Rim about the outside Chinese, Dragon Lady about the last Dowager Empress of China, who is talked about here. She is the one referred to as the old Buddha. She was anything but Buddhist, so maybe uh, the, 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 uh, in the Dalai Lama's uh, totalitarian, jihadist, and Nazi-linked element of Buddhism, perhaps. But uh, he, uh, that is to say, uh, Sterling Seagrave and Peggy also wrote Gold Warriors. And uh, he was the son of Gordon Seagrave, who was General Stilwell's top surgeon. And the writing in this is remarkable. I'm going to read the last three pages of the epilogue. It is a complicated Metaphor. Uh, it talks ostensibly about the um, palace in the Forbidden City in Peking, and it talks about the old Buddha, a.k.a. the last dowager empress of the Manchu dynasty, again overthrown by Sun Yat-sen and his, his uh, wife, uh, Madam Sun Yat-sen, a.k.a. Uh, Qingling Sung, or Sung Qingling, in the Chinese Liberation in 1911. Uh, the emperor, although he was emperor, was powerless, and he had a favorite concubine, basically, um, 
palace uh, consorts, uh, polite word for sort of imperial prostitutes, although they didn't get paid, they, they live well. Uh, the reference here to golden lotuses is to uh, foot binding that I uh, touched on at the end of the program about three or four weeks ago. But the entire metaphor in this conclusion is the Sung family to the corrupt and hated Manchu dynasty. The Manchu dynasty, I think, came in in uh, either the 16th or 17th century, uh, overthrew the Ming dynasty. They were much hated, and they were finally overthrown by Dr. Sun Yat-sen in 1911. But the uh, the metaphor here, again, is of the Dowager Empress, known as the Old Buddha, to the Sung family, and the concubine in the well so basically is a metaphor for all of the victims and the way Chiang Kai-shek just murdered his way across China, just a complete monster and the way the Sung family described uh, very aptly I think by Sterling Seagrave as like a bunch of pickpockets working a county fair while the rubes watch geeks bite the heads off live chickens I think that's a really appropriate metaphor but the the murderous regime of the Manchus and the Dowager Empress, a.k.a. the Old Buddha, is compared to, it's a metaphor for Chiang Kai-shek and the Song Dynasty. And uh, again, you just don't see writing like this. And uh, Sterling Seagrave writes about a horrifying episode in which as the Manchus were preparing to flee Peking as the uh, uh, foreign armies uh, who were fighting during the Boxer Rebellion episode were closing in. Uh, she wanted the emperor to flee with her. The emperor wanted to stay and to negotiate with the invaders. Uh, and the pearl concubine, the favorite of the emperor, who had generally resisted the will of the old Buddha uh, tried to intercede, and the old Buddha, a.k.a. the Dowager Empress of the Manchu dynasty, had her stuffed down a tiny well. The well was only two handbreadths of a man's hand across, so two, uh, two of her, or a, couple, a group of her palace eunuchs took the pearl concubine, shoved her and then jumped up and down on her to squeeze her down into this tiny well, and that's how she died. It's a horrifying episode, but this is presented as a metaphor for the way the Kuomintang ran China and the way the Sung family uh, ran China as well. There's also uh, a reference to uh, the Sung family all, all casting images in the mirror except for Ailing Sung, and uh, then uh, Sterling Seagrave says, well, what what uh, medieval conclusion would you would you draw from that? Basically, if she was a vampire, and uh, there is irony in this, there is subtlety in this, and the entire presentation. Uh, basically, there is a uh, an eloquence and a degree of literary sophistication in this that you don't see anymore here with our American Renaissance, R-E-N-I-S-S-E-N-C-E. This episode, I've given you an introduction. The epilogue is called The Concubine in the Well. It was late in June 1982, and the sky over Peking was beginning to clear of the yellow dust from the Gobi Desert that usually chokes the air in April and May. I was searching the, quote, great emptiness, unquote, of the forbidden city 
for a tiny sepulchre, one that was now all but forgotten. Here and there among the pavilions, clusters of tourists of different nationalities listened to guides explain the ceremonies and audiences that brought the Empress Dowager to this or that chamber at a certain hour each day. By the stone walls of the great courtyards, lots of young people, many of them Japanese, bent their heads to listen as if the rock would speak and reveal the secrets of the imperial eunuchs. Most of the tourists had already been to the Temple of Heaven, where they had been told that if they listened by the wall at one place in the courtyard, they could clearly hear the words of someone whispering by the wall a hundred yards away. So they took it for granted that all stone walls in Peking whisper. Only some of them do, and the presence of a human being is not required. The walls of the Forbidden City were all whispering to themselves as I walked by the Meridian Gate, a citadel powering beside a moat where strange regions have been marched since the time of the Khans. Far up in the battlements, in the shadowy eaves among tangerine piles where demons live, there were sudden movements that might have been bowmen hiding from sight, but were probably birds. Across the cobblestones of a vast parade ground and the arched bridges over the Goldwater stream, my path led, as everyone should, by the Hall of Supreme Harmony, around the Hall of Middle Harmony, and past the Hall of Preserving Harmony, before the Gate of Heavenly Purity, by the Nine Dragon Stream, to the Palace of Peaceful Old Age. There, among twisted pine trees where the secluded chambers of the imperial concubines clustered around miniature courtyards with paving stones that still sigh from the touch of golden lotuses. In one of the smaller courtyards near the Palace of Peace and Longevity, I found the tomb that had brought me on this uneasy pilgrimage. It was a well, shouldered with weathered stone, innocent in appearance, less then two hand spans across, but deeply menacing. Here, in the year 1900, there took place a scene of such chilling horror that it cleaves to my brain as a permanent nightmare. I came to exercise that ghost by confronting it. It was at the height of the Boxer Rebellion on the 15th of August, 1900, the hour of yin in mid-afternoon. All Peking was in alarm as the foreign armies approached to relieve the besieged legation quarter. In the Forbidden City, the Dowager Empress decided to flee. The murderous old Buddha, according to legend, had ordered her chief eunuch, Li Lianning, to obtain disguises. She put on the clothes of a peasant and changed her Manchu hairstyle to Chinese. Carriages waited to spirit them out the back gate, the gate of divine pride, to safety at Xi'an, S-I-A-N, in the west. Informed of her decision to take him along, the young emperor, Kuang Su, H-S-U, came to plead with her, accompanied by his favorite, the pearl concubine. This spirited wisp of a girl, elegantly dressed in layers of embroidered silks, was devoted to the 29-year-old emperor. But she had never tobied to gain the old Buddha's favor. 
Now she prostrated herself and implored the dowager to let the emperor remain, to carry out negotiations with the foreign generals. The poor concubine had been a thorn in the the dowager's side, interfering with palace intrigues by giving independent advice to the emperor. It was time to dispose of her. The dowager bellowed orders. Two eunuchs seized the pearl concubine. In terror, the emperor went to his knees and begged for her life, but the eunuchs carried the struggling girl to the narrow well by the palace of peace and longevity, turned her upside down in her shimmering cocoon of silks, and flung her shrieking into its maw. Because the well was so narrow, the eunuchs jumped on her to force her down. Her spirit is still down there, like an insect in amber, adding her protest to those who whisper in the walls and rooftops. The Forbidden City is a graveyard of souls drowned, beheaded, throttled, flayed alive to silence them in the interests of state. Here, murder was not an act of passion, but an instrument of rule. Judicial murder, imperial murder, silenced by assassination, to stifle those who would interfere, who would object, who would question, who would say no. What would Charlie Sung say about how his children turned out? Ching Ling, like the pearl concubine, was flung down a well, but they could not jump on her enough to keep her down. She won anyway. The others passed through life like a team of pickpockets through a carnival crowd, doing what they did best while the rubes watched geeks bite heads off live chickens. There are those who insist that Mei Ling, a.k.a. Madame Chiang Kai-shek, remained innocent throughout by virtue of her tunnel vision. It is not for me to say, except that these same people also believed in virgin birth. They were a family that could stand together in front of a mirror, chain-laying missing from the group by choice, all casting reflections except A. Ling. She cast no reflection at all. What medieval conclusion can we draw? Of all the people who might have acted, I wondered why Harry Truman did nothing. The man who dropped the atom bomb, who fired his top general, was in the best position to act. If it was too dangerous politically, or if it proved too difficult to frame legal charges, he could have found other ways to interfere with the tranquility of their retirement. At the least, he could have leaked the FBI discoveries from the report that he commissioned to give the press a field day. Perhaps he concluded that so many prominent people were involved, it would not be good for the nation, as they say. So nearly everyone remained silent. Nobody spoke for the victims. Who then will speak for the concubine in the well? Uh, Indeed, indeed. And uh, obviously the metaphor here is of the murderous regime of Chiang Kai-shek, its narco-fascist regime, to the murderous regime of the Manchu Dowager Empress, a.k.a. the Old Buddha, as he notes here. Here, murder was not an act of passion, but an instrument of rule. Judicial murder, imperial murder, silenced by assassination, to stifle those who would interfere, who would object, who would question, who would say no. The Forbidden City is a graveyard of souls drowned, beheaded, throttled, flayed alive to silence them in the interests of state. And as he notes, who then 
We'll speak for the concubine in the well. Who will speak for the victims? Well, Sterling Seagrave and Peggy Seagrave spoke for the victims, and they paid a price. And really, the straight railway line that Stanley Hornbeck described comes right smack dab through the U.S. And uh, when Sterling Seagrave and Peggy Seagrave spoke for the victims, uh, they too paid a price. In their book, Gold Warriors, uh, by again, by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave, that we have used many times, uh, I have accessed this in, uh, for the record, program number 1106, among others. Uh, in the foreword to the book, they have the following. Many people told us this book was historically important and must be published, then warned us that if it were published, we would be murdered. An Australian economist who read it said, quote, I hope they let you live, unquote. He did not have to explain who they, unquote, were. Then after talking about the pressure uh, that was uh, put on uh, people in Switzerland who revealed the truth about the uh, theft of Nazi gold in Swiss banks uh, after uh, their the rightful owners uh, in the uh, Holocaust, who died in the Holocaust, skipping down, they talk, the, the, the Seagraves write, We have been threatened with murder before. When we published the Sung Dynasty, we were warned by a senior CIA official that a hit team was being assembled in Taiwan to come murder us. He said, quote, I would take this very seriously if I were you. We vanished for a year to an island off the coast of British Columbia. While we were gone, a Taiwan hit team arrived in San Francisco and shot dead the Chinese-American journalist Henry Liu. When we published the Marcos Dynasty, we expected trouble from the Marcos family and its cronies, but instead we were harassed by Washington. Others had investigated Marcos, but we were the first to show how the U.S. government was secretly involved with the Marcos gold deals. We came under attack from the U.S. Treasury Department and its Internal Revenue Service, whose agents made threatening midnight phone calls to our elderly parents. Arriving in New York for an author tour, one of us was intercepted at JFK Airport, passport seized, and held incommunicado for three hours. Eventually, the passport was returned without a word of explanation. When we ran freedom of information queries to see what was behind it, we were grudgingly sent a copy of a telex message on which every word was blacked out, including the date. The justification given for the censorship was the need to protect government sources, which are above the law. During one harassing phone call from a U.S. Treasury agent, he said he was sitting in his office watching an interview he had done for a Japanese TV network, an interview broadcast only in Japanese, which we had never seen. After publishing the Yamato Dynasty, which briefly mentioned the discovery that is the basis for Gold Warriors, our phones and email were tapped. We know this because when one of us was in a European clinic briefly for a medical procedure, the head nurse reported that, quote, someone posing as your American doctor, unquote, had been on the phone asking questions. When a brief extract of this book was published in the South China Morning Post in August of 2001, several phone calls from the editors were cut off suddenly. 
Emails from the newspaper took 72 hours to reach us, while copies sent to an associate nearby arrived instantly. In recent months, we had began to receive veiled death threats. What have we done to provoke murder? To borrow a phrase from Jean Ziegler, again one of the people who blew the whistle on the Swiss gold, we are, quote, combating official amnesia, unquote. We live in dangerous times, like Germany in the 1930s, when anyone who makes inconvenient disclosures about hidden assets can be branded a, quote, terrorist, unquote, or a, quote, traitor, unquote. Despite the best efforts of the American and Japanese governments to destroy, withhold, or lose documentation related to the Golden Lily, we have accumulated thousands of documents, conducted thousands of hours of interviews, and we make all of these available to readers of this book on two compact discs, available from our website, www.bowstring.net, so they can make up their own minds. Parenthetically, that website is no longer uh, online. Both Seagraves have passed away. More about that now uh, below. We encourage others with knowledge of these events to come forward. When the top is corrupt, the truth will not come from the top. It will emerge in bits and pieces from people like Jean Ziegler and Christoph Miley, who decided that they had to, quote, do something, unquote. As a precaution, should anything odd happen, we have arranged for this book and all of its documentation to be put on the Internet at a number of sites. If we are murdered, readers will have no difficulty figuring out who they, unquote, are. Well, indeed, and uh, something, an addendum to this, uh, I'm going to read uh, something. This, again, is in Photo Record 1106. Uh, Sterling Seagrave passed away in 2017. His wife, Peggy, died of cancer, I believe, the year before. Whether it was a natural cancer or a, an induced national security cancer, and uh, the uh, intelligence services have, for decades, been able to kill people using cancer. I don't know. But in 2011, Sterling Seagrave narrowly attempted uh, not only escaped, I should say, a harrowing attempt on his life. And, uh, for, and from an obituary on the VersoBooks.com, on July 31st of 2017, there is this account of an attempt on Sterling Seagrave's life. Uh, from that obituary, Seagrave will be remembered warmly by Verso staff for his lively correspondence. In a 2011 email, he described an attempt on his life that followed the Spanish publication of Gold Warriors. Quote, A hired thug tried to murder me on the serpentine road leading up to our isolated house on the ridge overlooking Bonneuil-sur-Mer in southern France and merely succeeded. We've had several serious death threats because of our books. The road was very narrow in places with tarmac barely the width of my tires. At 10 p.m. Christmas night in 2011, after visiting Peggy at a clinic in Perpignan, as I turned the final hairpin, I clearly saw a guy sitting on a cement block path leading up to a shed for the uphill vineyard. He was obviously waiting for me because we were the only people living up there on that mountain shoulder. He jumped up, raised a long pole, and unfurled a black fabric that totally blocked the narrowest turn ahead of me. 
I tried to swerve to avoid him, not knowing whether he also had a gun, and my right front drive wheel went off the tarmac and lost traction in the rubble. The car teetered and then plunged down through a steep vineyard on my right side, rolling and bouncing front and rear, a hundred meters down into a ravine where it finally came to rest against a tree. Thanks to my seatbelt and airbag, I survived. I don't know how many concussions I got on the way down, but I managed to squeeze out the driver's door and fell onto the rubble. I got up on my left hand and knees, but my right shoulder caved in. Turned out later that I had fractured my right shoulder and all the ligaments there had been torn loose. I passed out and remained unconscious for 14 hours. After 12 hours, a vigneron driving up the next morning saw my wrecked car and body. He called the gendarmerie on his portable portable phone, and I was hoisted out unconscious by a chopper and flown to an old Victorian-era hospital in Perpignan, where they did nothing but keep me doped up on morphine for two weeks, no x-rays or serious medical care. Finally, friends in Bamules got me and Peggy transferred to a clinic on the beach there, where Peggy and I shared a room while we both recovered. I got my right shoulder ligaments fixed by an excellent surgeon in Perpignan. Peggy did not know it then, but she had an early stage of cancer. I still have a hairline fracture in my right shoulder. I attribute the event to staying too long in one place, so the spooks eventually tracked me down. We had been living for years on a sailboat, moving from Holland to Britain to Portugal to Spain and finally to France, where we found in Catalonia an ideal village at the Mediterranean end of the Pyrenees. In retrospect, I'm sorry I agreed to move ashore for Peggy's sake and sold the beautiful 43-foot boat that I had built from a bare hull. It was comfortable, but Peggy wanted a house. We never did find the right house in Bamulos, so we spent 18 years restoring a 13th century Templar ruin on the shoulder of the mountain. Made me an easy target. Definitely a bad decision. I think it was the Spanish edition of Gold Warriors that made me the easy target. Well, again, he went onto that sailboat uh, after getting the warning from a senior CIA official, uh, returning again to uh, the passage from Gold Warriors. When we published the Sung Dynasty, we were warned by a a senior CIA official that the hit team was being assembled in Taiwan to come murder us. He said, I would take this very seriously if I were you. We vanished for a year to an island off the coast of British Columbia. And uh, again, when you speak for the victims, uh, when you speak for the concubine in the well, as Sterling and Peggy Seagraves did, you pay a price for that. Uh, and uh, the regime under Chiang Kai-shek apparently uh, has left its ghosts. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek died in 1976. Uh, that hit team was assembled in Taiwan to kill the Seagraves in 1985. And uh, talking about... Uh, once again, the Manchu dynasty, and this was a metaphor for the Kuomintang. Here, murder was not an act of passion, but an instrument of rule. Judicial murder, imperial murder, silenced by assassination. 
to stifle those who would interfere, who would object, who would question, who would say no. And as he notes, so speaking about the FBI report that Harry Truman commissioned, and most of which was blacked out, redacted when uh, Sterling Seagrave got it via a Freedom of Information Act suit in 1983, said, uh, so nearly everyone remained silent. Nobody spoke for the victims. Who then will speak for the concubine in the well? Well, Sterling Seagrave did, Peggy Seagrave did. Uh, on the cover of Gold Warriors, there is an endorsement by Iris Chang, the author of uh, the book The Rape of Nan King. Uh, in For the Record programs 1007 and 1008, we talked about the death of Iris Chang and deep politics. When I interviewed Sterling Seagrave in 2009 for For the Record program 689, I wanted to talk about the death of uh, Iris Chang, whom I'm convinced was murdered. He also was convinced she was murdered and wouldn't talk about it. Uh, again, I talk about that in For the Records 1007 and 1008. Come back to it briefly in uh, pro- For the Record Program 1111. Uh, the first, by the way, of the programs I did about the pandemic. I'll make a long story short. The evidence suggests that Iris Chang, too, was silenced. And she, too, was murdered. So uh, who then will speak for the victims? And uh, lest you think, well, it doesn't concern me, uh, that railway line that Stanley Hornbeck spoke about is still going straight, and it's coming straight to your doorstep. In many programs, we have spoken about the coronavirus, which I am convinced is an op. And in our next show, the last show before the 32 gigabyte flash drive is updated, we are going to talk about the uh, Oswald Institute of Virology, as I put it. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, attempts uh, by the WHO to find the origins of the virus. And there's something that uh, really is something we, we hear nothing about, uh, and, and that is uh, that uh, dozens of countries' governments uh, have been uh, pressing for an investigation not only of the discovery of the virus in wastewater in Madrid in March of 2019, but an even more substantial finding of the virus in wastewater in Italy in September of 2019. And uh, as... Uh, a Wall Street Journal article from Monday, September 27th uh, has uh, put it. We'll come back to this in our program. Dozens of governments aligned with China have sent back ridiculous letters in support of Beijing's position, a person familiar with the letters said. A spokeswoman for the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases didn't respond to requests for comment. Again, the Chinese are pushing for an investigation of, among other things, in addition to Spain and Italy, uh, Fort Detrick, which was closed down. The U.S. Army Medical Institute of Infectious Diseases closed down for unnamed safety violations in August of 2019. We, however, will come back to that. The thing that's so noteworthy about this is that we've heard, I've heard nothing about this. Uh, our, quote, free press, unquote, has had no coverage. Dozens of countries that sounds like a major international phenomenon, and yet we've heard nothing about it. So uh, more about this in our next program. So if you think this is something that uh, was long ago and far away, uh-uh, that straight railway line is coming right through your front yard.
This concludes not only for the record 1214, but this series. This concludes for the record 1214, the narco-fascism of and the Kuomintang, part 21, being recorded on November 12th of the year 2021. On Dave Emery, have fun.